0: Hello and welcome to Nightlight. As we pass through another holiday season, like most all of us, I'm sure my mind becomes oversensitive to certain memories and strong emotions from when I was a boy. I remember two things that always stood out for me As more and more as I got older. I remember a warm sense of anticipation that I would not have been able to explain or verbalize back then, but I still recall the emotions without the words. It was the feeling of what I guess I would now call hope. Not hope in the sense of I hope things work out, but hope in the biblical sense. This anticipation for ultimate good. And that hope was that, at least in potential the season, the holiday season, would bring a possibility of family togetherness, of unity of heart, of affection, and that that was going to somehow one day be uninterrupted by sorrow. Now, idealistic or fanciful or childish, yes, all those words might apply, I guess, but another word that I know applies is normal what I was feeling was normal. Yeah, there is something we can call normal besides the overused reference to it as a setting on the dryer. As I look back on it now from the vantage point of a father and now a grandfather, I think I'm saying it perfectly right. It was simply hope for normal. And normal was for life, love, goodness, and truth to somehow be, and to never stop being. Now that was the first inner sensation that would begin to rise up in me in the holidays. Uh, Even at the moment of that first whispered promise of cool air that portends the coming of the so-called holiday season, that still affects me the same way, that first moment of cool air, which we're still waiting for. (laughs) The food, of course, was part of it. But as a preteen and teenager, it was a big part of it. But even then, I can say food was secondary. What took precedence over the food and the ball games and all the other events was a perennial vision that would return in me every year, no matter how many years it got disappointed, that we would all be together one day and happy and it would be uninterrupted. And, and somehow, for even for a few moments, it would last and be eventually uninterrupted by sorrow in my mind. One day it was going to last forever. That's what I'm trying to say. I, I didn't know it intellectually then, but I intuitively knew somewhere deep inside me that this hope I felt was not an unrealistic hope. It was actually a hope of the way it was meant to be. It was right. And that implied, obviously, that anything less, therefore, was not right. It was wrong. It was an intrusion of something foreign and even evil that was never intended to be. I said at the outset here that there were two things I was always aware of thinking about at this season. I just described only the first one, hope for goodness and unity of heart and love that would never end. But the second thing, it was always present too. I also would think about the fact that uh, only in a few moments, the first hope would be dashed and seemed to disappear in the moment of outburst of ill temper or the slicing, piercing sound of vulgar expletives or quarreling or some other human brokenness. And just like my awareness that the goodness and hope was the way things ought to always be, I also knew in an even more poignant, conscious way that the atmosphere of strain and anger and at times fear was an invasion. It was not life, and it was not designed to be that way, even though from the merely human side of things, it was what was usual. And I was aware of this conflict not merely erupting around me from others, but from inside myself toward others. My hope would quickly fade to disappointment, and then even more quickly to a kind of flatness inside and then from that flat place, that let down inner place of loss of of my hope, then anger would flare, then like a collapsed balloon, it would all dwindle and turn into disillusionment. And within a few minutes, I would be off to whatever empty form of self-entertainment or self-stimulation I could find for myself. A pitiful plastic pseudo-replacement for the sense of hope, joy, peace, and love I had been anticipating. Uh, A few days ago, I was having lunch with an old wise friend of ours. He knows the depth of pain and the height of God's healing grace as well as anybody I know and better than most. His was a very painful and broken childhood. He's now one of the most clear-minded and Jesus-honoring people in my acquaintance. And we'd been eating and talking about nothing of any great depth, just usual stuff men tend to talk about, especially in times like this. When in the middle of our conversation, kind of a bit out of the blue, he said, you know, peace is simply the way it's supposed to always be. Our natural state should always be that of peace. I know that that may not sound profound to say it, but as clear and simple as it is, most people don't seem to know it. Anything that takes me out of peace is an invasion of something I was not designed to allow into me. I was meant for peace. That he was right is, I guess, pretty obvious to any thinking Christian, but it's also, just as he pointed out, that the obviousness of that statement is lost on most of us. It's finally coming to me after 62 years. It's becoming pretty obvious that that's true. What I was longing for and even allowing myself to hope for as a boy during the holiday season was an echo or a whisper of a world the way it was meant to be. And now I know that it's also the preview of the world the way it will one day be. But according to the New Testament, between the way it is and the way it will one day be, there is this mixture. You know well what I mean, this mixture of some of this great goodness that teases us seemingly where the promise of the never-ending good shows up but is immediately challenged by this other opposite force we sadly mistakenly call normal. The message of the Holy Spirit through page after page of Scripture is this. The God of the way it ought to be has sent his presence down into the way it is in order to demonstrate to the evil powers and to evil men that the way it ought to be does exist and can dwell in the midst of the way it is. And this will happen and keep happening and increasingly happen until the way it ought to be eventually roots out and supplants the way it is. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the meaning of the word we translate simply in English as peace needs a lot of unpacking. In Greek, it is irene, and means basically that all the parts of a thing are present and working together properly. Now, that's a bland but accurate definition, but one that affirms exactly what my boyhood hope was for every holiday season, that we would all be present and that everything would work together properly. But the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, which most of us know, expresses the meaning with far more passion and poetry and heart than the Greek word. Shalom means all of what we generally think of as peace, but tremendously amplifies it to include not merely absence of strife, but wholeness, reconciliation, completeness, fullness of being and meaning, ultimate fulfillment, prosperity, productivity. What well, we would run out of words to try to capture all that this meant by the word that we in English simply shrink down to the word peace. It might be helpful to think of it like this. We think of the opposite of peace in English as the opposite of peace being absence of conflict, or upset, or even war. But if we understood the opposite of shalom, it would be hell. Peace is God's full-orbed meaning for us and for all creation, and its opposite is absolute, utter, demonic, chaos, hellishness. Our refusal to allow his peace to manifest and to come up uh, with another alternative of our own—something the Bible calls sin—is not a list of rules that we've broken. That's not what sin is. No, sin—sin sin is hell. In the reality of creation, we have rejected, we create, the that which should never have been. Sin is not merely a moral issue. It's a sanity issue, a metaphysical issue, a survival and functional existence issue. To reduce the idea of sin to some silly religious moralistic idea of having broken the rules is a painful and successful ploy of the devil to to ruin the good of reason in us and reduce us to a shallow, almost meaningless categories. We then store only within a certain larger category we call religion. So inside the religion storehouse, we stack our concepts of sin, while outside, where we really live in real life, dealing with real things, we lay aside any ideas of truth, love, goodness, and peace, and pragmatically go after life only on our own terms. Yeah, we do this whether we're Christians or not. You know where you do it, where you don't buy into it. You know, in some aspects of your life, where you you do this, and and so do I. It's not the part of life we are just living as normal, only human. That's how we say it. Oh, it's it's just normal. It's only human. These these broken things. No, in these parts of our life where we disregard goodness, love, and truth, we're actively insane. In those areas, we're insane. Where you blow up at the kids or snap at your wife or cuss at the television because the voice coming out of it, which you have turned into um, on, on purpose and are listening to on purpose, by the way, is making you angry. Of course, because he or she on the TV is an idiot okay, I just confessed my stuff, so what's yours? When you do those things, you're really operating in an insanity. It's not normal. It's not just human. It's insane. I'm not doing this to us to make us feel bad. I have probably succeeded to do that though, but that's not my point. My point is that if we are not wisely awake and willfully careful to be and stay awake, we can easily drown in the world's definition of what is and is not normal. And if we allow that self-comforting lie that tells us, well, it's okay, it's just the way things are, you're only human, we will not be prepared within to take our rightful place as salt and light and to help heal the world. We will be wounded freeloaders in the kingdom of God with nothing to give, and always needing to take as much as we can get from others. We will be just as impotent and destructive as the world we claim we love and want to help. See, at some point we must begin to believe that the resurrected Son of the living God, who lives within us, has come down into us to remake us into his own image, and that reality begins to show up, not in turning water into wine or walking on water, but more in how you treat your family, your friends, and your enemies. If you happen to get to walk on water and get to water turned into wine, well, I, I guess that's great. It makes a good testimony for the moment. But what is far more lasting and meaningful is whether we love or whether we hate. What we love, what we hate. All that is good, which pertains to life and godliness, which gives meaning, joy, and fulfilled purpose. That which is summed up in the word life. This is the heart of God for every being that he created. And our calling right now is in this present, less than life existence that we're battling through. is full of mixture, where we see glimpses of shalom, but do not yet know it in its fullness. Here is where we are to learn to rule. Yes, we are destined to rule the universe. We, you and I, and all the other Christians you may think don't have much going for them are being trained by the conflicts and painful encounters and disappointments and times of confusion and feelings of helplessness and betrayals of friendships and misunderstandings and temptations and fears and grievous losses, did I leave out anybody yet? In order that as we learn to depend on the Holy Spirit and his word to us, We become sons and daughters of our Father, and we learn obedience through the things that we suffer. We keep at it, stumbling and falling. We don't do it perfectly like our elder brother did, but we keep following him, stumbles and all, and we walk through the hellish world, manifesting the opposite spirit of that world, which is the spirit of hell. We are to be salt in the face of rot, light in the face of darkness. It's no wonder then that the peacemakers are blessed and will be called children of God, Matthew 5, 9. For how we learn to engage the hellishness on earth and in people, and most of all in ourselves, is the very thing that develops the family likeness in us that will eventually cause us to become exactly like him, 1 John 3 verses 1 through 3 says, How we learn to live this way determines how long this earthly classroom of mixture will have to go on. Our Christ-likeness is what the Apostle Peter says will, quote, hasten the coming of the day when this war will be finished by the full coming of the kingdom of God on earth, Second Peter chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 I must resist the temptation to take a side trail into the full meaning of this chapter of 2 Peter, but let's settle for the point here that our obedience to God in manifesting his shalom in the midst of hellish circumstances is what scripture tells us actually hastens, speeds up the process that culminates in the end of evil and the return of the king and the setting up of his kingdom in its fullness. I understand our tendency to want to study end times scenarios. For heaven's sakes, I have it myself. And I don't criticize that interest in us. It's good to want to understand as much as we can, but it's far more valuable when coming to the subject of the end of the age to pay attention to how we are living our daily lives, especially with regard to how we deal with evil. Are we overcoming evil with good? Do we still have a spirit of revenge that disguises itself as righteous anger? I don't know how much you all may have been able to keep up with the current sorrows going on here in North Carolina with the Charlotte riots. Ever since the city of Charlotte mayor and city council chose to willfully embrace the spirit of rebellion and lawlessness by disregarding the laws of God and of God-ordained earthly government when they instituted a city ordinance that uh, changed state law, which they didn't have the authority to do, not to mention natural law and shaking their fist in the face of the Creator by opening uh, the use of public restrooms to any and everyone, regardless of gender, Then the spirit of lawlessness was released and has been growing and is now overflowing into the streets. I wish you could be able to see a few of the pictures I want to mention here, though. We, for some blessed reason, happen to have a local television news channel that tries to find as much redemptive news as they can. And they placed some pictures online I don't ever want to forget. One shows the hardened face of a black police officer in full riot gear. You can see his stoic, battle-ready face through the eye shield of his helmet. But from behind that eye shield, pouring down his face are tears as he stands against his own people who seem hell-bent on mindless evil. There are pictures of black people hugging white policemen and of white people hugging black policemen. And they reported last night that a large number of black pastors had come out and stood between the rioters and the policemen, letting it be known to the violent that they would have to come through the the pastors if they wanted to attack the police. Now that is being salt and light. This is making shalom Peacemakers, this is at least a beginning. We must learn this lesson more and more in the days ahead. It's not that we're seeking to make peace in order to maintain the status quo existence we've been known to live in so that we can just restore our own selfish tranquility. No, don't think of it as our merely trying to keep our white picket fence in place, as we've said in previous messages. Rather, we're leaving behind the status quo, the white picket fence. We're rejecting our self-centered desire for our own tranquility and moving forward to another position in the spirit we have not ever attained to, a position where we take our proper stance in the battle line, where we, the people of God, demonstrate in the midst of hell and all of its earthly expressions, that there is another reality in the universe, far greater, far higher, and that that reality has come, died in the face of hell's worst manifestations of itself, and then retaliated against hell, not by manifesting more hell, but by heaven raising life out from death, and in that action destroying death in the process. And that risen one lives in his people. And his people live in this world and are not seeking to escape this world, but rather are seeking to confront this world with the opposite spirit of hell. This is what it means for us to take up our cross and follow the one who died on his cross. For some of us, it may mean we die on our cross. But if we, as a people who truly believe what we say we believe, Face such possibilities, then we find out that what we claim to believe is not just a bunch of religious talk we keep in our religious compartmental uh, lives and reserve only for weekends and special occasions. No, we truly become transformed people who then transform the world and become true disciples of Jesus and not, as one excellent writer refers to it, not just a fan. I do not pray that you take them out of the world, Jesus said in John 17, but keep them from the evil that is in the world. We are therefore against the world for the world's sake. We do not act like the world by returning evil for evil. We will learn from this coming conflict to give up our past safety, leisure, and fleshly pleasure-seeking, in order to enter the final harvest by manifesting the spirit of the king who destroyed evil, not by violence, but by love. And there's a story found in Luke chapter 9, verse 51 through 56. It takes only a few small verses to tell it, but it's crammed full of meaning, especially for us in the day we're living in now. When the time had come for Jesus to be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers before his face to a village of the Samaritans to prepare for his coming, but they would not receive him because his face was fully set for Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them like Elijah did? But he turned himself fully toward them in sternness and rebuked them and said you do not know what manner of spirit you are of for the son of man is not here to destroy men's lives but to save them. And they went on to the next village. Several points about these verses that I want to focus on just for a moment. Kind of things that we just don't pay attention to unless the circumstances of life around us force us to dig out the treasure that are hidden in these verses. For one thing I want to point out is that it says he turned himself. The, the, the word there in Greek comes from the root word strafo, and it means to, to turn his entire body toward them. So the idea here is that he's walking and he hears what they say about calling fire down upon the, the Samaritans and he turns his entire body around toward them. Get the picture. And then it says he rebuked them. And the word rebuke here, in, in Luke's usage of the word, is only reserved for storms, demons, demons fevers and evil, Uh, but usually not for disciples, except on a couple of occasions when he was really making stern points in his teaching. But in this particular case, he turns his whole body toward them and speaks with the same level of rebuke that he would rebuke a demon or cast out a fever or still a storm. And he says, You don't know what manner of spirit you are of. The Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Now, this phrase, You do not know what spirit you are of, is not found in many of the original texts. You'll find that it's left out in many of your more modern translations. The reason is the same as why the story of the woman taken in adultery is left out of some modern translations. It's not found in what is considered the best, most accurate, and earliest manuscripts. This doesn't mean it's invalid. It only means what I just said. It could be that those words were written in, in oral were written in response to oral traditions which were strong enough to merit trust because they came from trustworthy sources and because they fit the spirit of the text and so were included in later manuscripts. This one fits the spirit of the text perfectly, whether it was an oral tradition or uh, not. But here's a question. Is Jesus saying you do not know what kind of Holy Spirit you are supposed to be living under? Or is he saying, stop it, you do not realize what kind of evil spirit you are operating under? It could be either. He could be saying, you don't understand the new spirit that I want you to walk in. Or he could be saying, stop it, you are operating under an old evil spirit that I will not tolerate. I think really it was the second one. But it could be either. Either is appropriate to the point of the story, and that being that James and John had a personality that was given to anger. That's why Jesus calls them in Mark 3, verse 17, sons of thunder. The normal cultural climate politically between Jews and Samaritans is one of hate and conflict. Luke, who has Greek roots, seems very careful not to mention anything negative about the Samaritans, but goes out of his way to do the opposite. Only here does Luke make any reference to the Jewish Samaritan hatred, and his reason for mentioning it here is to demonstrate the heart of Jesus towards this most despised racial enemy of the Jews. If we go back through the story a bit, you'll see the scenario. Jesus is now setting his face for Jerusalem. That means he's preparing himself to head straight into the terrible maelstrom of arrest and crucifixion. So in his humanity he has to steel himself, not to allow any distractions from men or from devils in order to fulfill his mission. To get to Jerusalem he must pass through Samaria where he has been before with successful ministry. John chapter 4, the woman at the well, the entire village who believes in him. You know that story well. But it only takes a little time for political sparks to change the climate of things as we see happening daily in our own country and around the world. After three years of constant discipling, Jesus finds that his two closest young disciples, James and John, are still controlled by their old Jewish political prejudices. When they offer to repay the Samaritans with fire from heaven to destroy them, Jesus is angrier at them than we can find any example of him being angry at his disciples in all of Scripture. And he's angry at their anger. He rebukes their attitude as he would rebuke the deadly storm or the fever or the demons. Now what do we learn from this? We're facing our own storm, our own fevers of soul stirred up by demons. Our wrestling match is not against people of flesh and blood, but it is against dark powers, the rulers who manipulate people, demonic rulers. We're called to pray, we're called to preach, but the other weapon we're called to wield to overthrow the powers and principalities is the weapon of living in the opposite spirit from the world. Every generation that has passed through its own tribulation period and battled its own antichrists has produced its own hall of fame of faith, those who overcame the dragon by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony who did not love their lives to the death, Revelation twelve eleven. My generation has learned so much from the stories like Corrie ten Boom as she faced the Nazis or the, the Koran people who died under the cruelty of the Burmese government persecutors. We sat through heart-wrenching testimonies of suffering saints from China or various other parts of the world And we all admitted their stories put our faith in the light of their own uh, as being greatly lacking. We considered them to be in the same category of honor as those listed in Hebrews chapter 11, of whom it says the world is not even worthy. But now in this present hour we are not only faced with the sheer genocide of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East or in the Sudan or North Korea, but we are just very slightly, beginning to feel only the smallest awareness of how tenuous our own freedom to openly follow Jesus is becoming. What will we do now? Let me repeat something I stressed to us in our last hour together. We do not begin trying to see if we have what it takes to suffer. God does not give us grace for imaginary suffering. We do two things. We examine ourselves to see if we are being faithful to what we know from the Lord, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Then secondly, we do whatever is in front of us to do to obey him. As you go through your daily life living fully dependent on the Holy Spirit within you, you love and serve people in his name. And if a large demand should come upon you, You will find that because you've been faithful in the small things, God will make you ruler over larger things, Matthew 25. He will give you the words you need when you need them, Matthew 10, verse 19. And even grace to die should you need it, Revelation 2, verse 10. As we said in our last time together, we are not to focus on how we might die but on what we are to do in living, what we are to do with the time we've been given. And in keeping with the theme of the entire message, we are to find ways to be bringers and keepers of the peace in the midst of this present darkness, among whom we shine as lights in the world, Philippians 2.15. And as the days become more evil, we become more actively present in the midst of that evil to be the antidote of the poison, but before we examine very briefly only a few current examples where people of God are being salt and light and are healing the unhealable by helping to bring forgiveness to the unforgivable, let me sound a word of warning. This is deep water. We do not step into it carelessly or unprepared. And I can tell you from my limited experience, some things are so terrible that nothing you can do would have prepared you for the level of evil you might encounter. Unless the person attempting to bring such help into such depths has a clear vision of the cross and the resurrection, and I don't mean that as mere doctrinal belief, but they live in daily unity and and intimacy with the Lord. They have his mind and his heart and listen to his voice and enter into this darkness with his light then otherwise they should not go there. Those who have recorded the work of the healers who laid down their lives in South Africa to save their country from the effects of the ravages of apartheid can help us understand this a little bit. When the South African people finally overthrew their immoral racial laws, which had for decades produced one of the worst examples in modern history, of what a demonic regime is capable of doing to its own people, the whole world was watching and fully expected and feared that there would be a terrible explosion of revenge. Surely, we thought, South Africa will soon be turned into a bloodbath far worse than the flow of blood that has been pouring more silently and covertly beneath the shroud of national duplicity and corporate sin. When it did not happen that way, the only answer was the intercessory prayer and power of the South African church, which had carried the burden for release from apartheid and was therefore prepared to also carry the greater burden of overseeing the peace in the face of freedom. For in freedom there would be the pouring forth of thousands of victims, eyewitnesses and survivors who would with that freedom have the power to seek revenge on everyone from the highest government officials to the lowest street thug. What came instead was a steady stream of healing confrontations carried on in the courts but overseen by the people of God under the auspices of what came to be known as the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of South Africa, which convened in 1997. But listen to the cost such work demanded. Quote, At the beginning of our work on the commission, our mental health worker on the staff gave us a briefing about coping with what was to be a grueling and demanding task. We were advised to make sure that we had a soulmate or some such close friend or counselor to whom we could unburden ourselves. We were urged to maintain a well-disciplined existence. Otherwise, we would be shocked by how easy it was to disintegrate, to become stressed, and even to suffer ourselves from post-traumatic stress disorder as we experienced by proxy the anguish and the agony of those who came to testify before the commission. It was emphasized that we should have quality time with our spouses and our families, to be sure to take recreational breaks and maintain regular exercise, and if possible, to have extra spiritual care. We all thought we had been reasonably prepared for the traumatic experience. Despite all this, we were shattered at what we heard, and we had frequent breakdowns among us. Interrupted sleep patterns, nightmares, uncontrollable bouts of weeping, outbursts of anger, and increased inability to reasonably deal with even slight frustrations were only some of what we began to deal with. They went on to explain how there were huge stresses on marriages and eruptions of life-threatening diseases as the healers became themselves infected with the sorrow and rage at injustice they were being asked to help carry by those who were the true victims of the injustice. That was South Africa. We might examine the same dynamics regarding Rwanda, the Sudan, now most of the Middle East, much of Africa, but also what about Northern Ireland, Cuba, and now in many of our own inner cities as the insanity of human cruelty leaks out into the suburbs and reaches the rural areas. Whether one is dealing with the private sufferings of individuals or with an ethnic people group or a national or or international situation, it takes supernatural power to enter and to successfully maintain the ministry of reconciliation on this level. I do not pretend to be anything close to an expert though Mary and I have helped open wounds and deal with long covered up suffering in souls of people and in doing so we have found at times such terrible injustice and deep suffering that had we not known who we were in Christ we would have come away damaged and broken ourselves I have on several occasions had to receive help and prayer from others so that I could forgive the perpetrators of evil that I just helped their victims forgive. If you become serious about this calling, I suggest you obtain and study our recent teaching series on the healing power of joy, which God designed to be energized through an entire community of believers as the source of of the power and strength to be able to endure it. It's called The Healing Journey of Joy. In it we explain how the wounds in certain sufferers cannot be addressed by any one single individual, but that the entire body of believers as one multifaceted family together brings the needed giftedness and spiritual uh, discernment as well as just sheer human support that can and does bring eventual ultimate healing. But even this study is only a basic beginning. So I'm wording this as if we all have some option about this, and I don't think we do anymore. At least right now, I have the luxury of suggesting that you can opt out of this, but we may not have that option. We might like to believe that our prayers can reverse the tide of growing unrest and purge away the cancerous infections of evil, which we have passively allowed to grow these past few decades. But reality will not allow us to be so naive, I don't think. Our lack of proper grasp of history has left us with a false sense of security based on our sliver of world experience, which we call today. But for those with a wider lens that can see the whole flow of history, we get the warning of how very quickly the scenes can change from what seems stable, secure, and sane, and orderly, to the terrible opposite. Just take, for instance, the German school student being educated in the music of Brahms, Beethoven, and Bach, and reading the literature of Goethe, believing himself to be the inheritor of the highest Christian cultural treasury in history totally unaware of the secret decay taking place beneath his feet that for previous decades had been slowly but surely undermining his German Christian civilization until it seemed suddenly to cave in, taking him down into another world that his Lutheran upbringing did not foresee. This present generation is far less educated than was the young German student of a 100 years ago. The lack of understanding of how history moves leaves so many vulnerable to being drowned in the next wave of tsunami insanity. Streams of thought of today may become a torrent tomorrow, for good or for ill. And apart from the direct intervention of the Holy Spirit, it's usually a flow for ill. But thank God, when the enemy comes in like a flood... The Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against it, Isaiah fifty nine nineteen. The enemy is flooding this present world with horrors unseen since World War II, and some things never seen before at all, and in places never exposed to such horrors before. And apart from the more obvious atrocities of war-torn areas, any social worker or any city pastor can tell you at least a dozen stories that would reduce a grown man to weeping if he's sane, How will the Holy Spirit bring an intervention of goodness and redemption into such a flood of sheer chaos? Well, he will raise up small, unknown, insignificant people to do it, like he always has. He will pour out his Spirit on a generation of millennials, those under 35 who we tend to think of as being hopelessly misdirected, and he will fill them with his Holy Spirit, the corporate effect of such individual anointing will be what the prophet Joel saw in chapter 2. I will restore to you the years the locust has eaten, the cankerworm, the caterpillar, and the palmer worm. And my people shall never be ashamed. It will come to pass in the last days that I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. And upon my servants and my handmaids will I pour out of my spirit. And whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be delivered. God will raise up his army out of unforeseen places. Let me tell you, one of my students who is seriously following Jesus, but he did not grow grow up in a Christian family and doesn't know much scripture at all. He wrote me a note a few days ago. He's never read Joel chapter 2. He's twenty years old, never read Joel chapter two, never never heard it, far as I know, far as he knows. But this is the note he wrote me. Clay, please don't ever stop dreaming for me. Your dreams become my vision, and my vision becomes the reality for my generation. Did you get that? He's quoting Joel. In fact, he's not just quoting Joel chapter 2. He's, he's helping me understand Joel chapter 2. I've never fully understood what it means that old men will dream dreams and young men will see visions. As I've gotten older, I understand more about how old men dream dreams. But what's that got to do with young men seeing visions? Well, here's a kid who doesn't even know the scriptures, never read it, but he's interpreting the scriptures right from the Holy Spirit. Please don't ever stop dreaming for me. Your dreams become my vision, and my vision becomes my reality, or the reality for my generation. Deuteronomy 33, verse 25 says, your strongholds shall be of bronze and iron. As your days are, so shall your strength be. I take hold of that as my days are, so shall my strength be. Whatever the response or demand for response is in my generation, whatever time I've got left, I will have the strength to do it. This is the promise given to the tribe of Asher. But it's amplified and made even more certain for those who are in Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Ironically though, 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, our strength is made perfect, in our weakness. We won't most likely be given some supernatural infusion of energy that convinces us of our ability to do hard things. We go in our weakness and receive as we go the infusing power necessary for us to be able to go. And we don't begin with Rwanda or maybe South Africa. You may not even have to begin with local inner city issues, dark as they are becoming. Maybe it will be only your troubled neighbor or co-worker who opens up to you a deep hidden sorrow of such magnitude that they've never been able to tell, but can now no longer carry. Maybe it will be that you're confronted by a rising tide of injustice and some local issue that you find you can no longer be silent about, So you have to get up and move in that direction even though it's against your normal behavior or personality. Maybe you will become unable to sleep for thinking of the prison near you and you hear the silent cries coming from the cells that contain someone's son or daughter. Their loved ones who may be praying for them have paved the way for you to become the prayers that are answered. Maybe you will become a foster parent of a child who previously has experienced nothing but evil from adults, and has made her unable to trust or bond with anybody. So you get to be her first real hero. I could go on and on with the possibilities. I I know how daunting all this is. If God truly calls us to, to do something, it's most likely a task we cannot do unless he shows up. I know how that feels. Every time Mary and I do a conference, People come with deep, unmet, and unmeetable needs, and we tell them God will meet them. If God doesn't do it, nothing will happen. But God keeps showing up year after year, event after event, need after need. Sometimes the miracle is slow and progressive, resulting in a transformation of life over time and against many odds. Sometimes it's instant, But the Holy Spirit puts us in a position where it has to be him or nothing. But he wants us there in the middle of all of that as his children because that's how he unites us with him in kingdom activities and that's how he trains us for our future. During our August Black Mountain Conference this year, a young man we've known for many years was able to return to us after not being present for quite some time. He had not only served his country and faced the worst of the battlefield, but he had been injured beyond repair. His pain levels, which were usually measured on a scale of 0 to 10, would stay somewhere around an 8 and often peak up into what his doctors referred to as a 12 Far beyond that physical torture, he carried secretly, unbeknownst to us, the memory of an event on the battlefield that was driving him into insanity. It was regarding two little girls, and he himself is the parent of two little children, so it made the mental torture all the worse. The unmitigated horror of what happened to these children on the battlefield replayed in his mind over and over. And rather than being able to turn to the comfort of his own children for reprieve, that only hugely increased his sense of hopeless agony as he not only thought of what had happened in battle, but of what it might be had it been his own children. No counselor can fix that. But just as quietly and privately as the mental suffering had been, while he was worshiping during the conference and putting himself in the presence of the Lord, Jesus stepped into his memory. And each of his arms he held the two children who had died on the battlefield. Jonathan saw the Lord and he heard him say, See, see Jonathan, I've got them. You don't need to carry them anymore. And I suppose as a way of leaving his signature on this memory healing in in order for both Jonathan and all the rest of us to know he was the one who did it, the pain in his body stopped. And unless my report is not up to date, it has not returned since the conference, and that's been well over a month ago. This was unrelenting, unbearable pain, and it's gone. Now this is how we heal the world and forgive the unforgivable. We will stand in faith and just be his witnesses, point to him, manifest his grace to others as it has been given to us, and then watch what he does. I have no idea what to do or what we're going to be called upon to do if if we're called upon to do it. I I have no formulas beyond what I've just described. Here's what I do know, what I believe, what I can say for certain. We have accrued a level of sinful chaos that has reached a place of overflow in this country and in the West. As surely as the floods of Louisiana or the fires of California or the anger of Chicago or the despair of Detroit has reached its overflow level. As surely as the duplicity of the Congress and the injustice of Washington and the confusion of the military and the lust of Hollywood has reached its point of overflow, so has the manifestation of all that combined evil reached its point of overflow. And once it begins to flood out, as we are already beginning to see, the needs will reach a point also so that all hands of God's people in whatsoever capacity they can give themselves will be called upon to be on deck. Our days of quiet, non-involvement, independent, individualized, living as American Christians or British Christians or wherever we may be, those days are over. Those days where we listen to sermons and music and watch our favorite TV shows ministry-related issues, those things are all good. I'm not criticizing them, but they're coming to an end. We have been feeding on these truths to gain strength for such an hour as this. We have fed long enough. The trumpet is sounding. Prepare for the harvest.